and uh, their pastor has recently retired, and so Ruben has uh, agreed to help at least this Sunday, and I believe Henry Friesen is speaking next Sunday, helping out there as well, so let's remember them in prayer as they are helping that congregation uh, with some pulpit help in, in the preaching department, and also let's remember them as they seek a new pastor there at the Glenboro Bible Chapel. I invite you to bow with me once more as we prepare to enter God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder that we've just watched of your providence, how you can take the worst of circumstances. For Joseph, that meant being betrayed, sold into slavery by his own family, by his own brothers. And yet in the end, he could see clearly how you had used all of it, Lord, for the salvation of not only his family, but an entire nation. And that you brought about a wonderful healing and reconciliation even at the end that he was able to forgive them and be reunited as a family once more. We thank you for this, Father. We thank you, Lord, that we know that that same power is at work in our, in our time. Lord, that as we, uh, as a world, continue to go through um, challenges, it seems, one after another, Lord, we can wonder where this is all headed, but we thank you that we serve the same God, who in your divine providence, Lord, all things are working according to your plan, and that you are bringing about a glorious good, um, even through the worst that is happening in our world today. And so we thank you for this. Thank you that this also holds true in our personal lives, Lord, that through challenges, through difficult times, that you can take those and turn them around in a wonderful way that only you know. And so help us to have the faith to trust you. Father, we also think of today, Brother uh, Reuben, uh, sharing your word in Glenmoral. Bless him, Lord, even now as he prepares to speak. And uh, may the word go out and do what you have intended for it. I pray the same for this word this morning, Lord, that you would bless it and that it would do the work in our hearts and minds that you, that you intend for it today. And so speak through me, your servant, I pray. May the words be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we are entering Romans part 32, entitled, Christ Has No Hands But Ours. After World War II, a group of students volunteered to help rebuild an English cathedral that had been severely damaged by German bombs during the London Blitz. As work progressed on the cathedral, they became concerned about a large statue of Jesus whose arms were outstretched and beneath which was the inscription, Come unto me. They had particular difficulty trying to restore the hands of this statue of Christ, which had been completely destroyed. The hands were missing entirely from the statue. Finally, after much discussion, they decided to leave the hands remain missing and change the inscription below the statue to read, Christ has no hands but ours. It's believed that those students were inspired by the words of Teresa of Avila, a 16th century nun who once wrote this, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on the world. Yours are the feet which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. Yours are the body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Now, of course, we know that the Lord Jesus, who is even now seated at the right hand of the Father, he, of course, still has his physical hands that yet bear the nail marks 
that purchased our salvation. However, in this sense, in this spiritual sense, until our Lord Jesus physically returns to the earth, his work in the world today is done by the hands of us, his disciples. And so in that sense, Christ has no hands but ours. And this is the primary reason that the very first line of our church's mission statement, which hangs on our wall here, says, serving with our hands. For indeed, our hands, in this way, are the hands of Christ. You see, the spiritual life of faith must always be bound together with the practical works of service. In fact, as James would tell us in his letter, if our works of faithful service are missing, it would call into question whether we have faith at all. In fact, James would argue that it is precisely our works of service that prove that our faith is in fact genuine and not merely lip service. For our love and our devotion to our Lord Jesus is always demonstrated most clearly not by only our words, but by our actions and service. Those actions and service first come to Jesus' body, the church. It is by how we love one another that we show we are his disciples. But the second, of course, is an extension of the first, that as we lovingly serve one another as a body, that service then moves outward. The church does not exist primarily for the benefit of its own members, but for the benefit of the world around it that still needs Jesus. And so the Great Commission, our mandate, to bring the gospel to the world and to make disciples of all nations, this is the outward action of the church. And so this morning, as we come to Romans chapter 12 and verses 6 to 8, Please turn there with me in your Bibles, if you're not there already. We've looked at these verses a couple of times already, but we're going to look at them a little bit more closely this morning. Now, last week, we studied verses 3 through 6, and we learned how the body of Christ works best. You'll recall that Paul was addressing a church that had a rather contentious issue, that there was Gentiles and Jews in the same body, and there was some tension between them, looking down on each other as to who was better. Now, addressing this head-on, Paul shows the, the way the body works best was first, each member must be called to humility. No one was to think too highly of themselves, but rather from a place of humility, recognizing that we are all equal before the cross, all equally deserving of God's wrath, but rather he he in his great love and mercy has given us grace. And so in this way, we are all equal in Christ. There is no better or worse. We are all the same. And so we are called to humility. Second, each member is called to oneness, to unity in the body. And then thirdly, each member is called to serve the body as each part does its function. And so this week, we're going to continue to build off that that third point in verse 6, of each part using the gifts that it has been given to build up the whole. And now we're going to learn some of the primary ways that we can all do our part in serving the body. And so here the Apostle Paul refers to these different functions of the body as gifts. And we know elsewhere in other uh, epistles that he wrote as well, he refers to these things as gifts. And he emphasizes that all members of the body have different gifts according to the giver, who is the Holy Spirit, who decides what gifts to give to which part of the body. So it's up to him to decide who receives the gift of teaching, who receives the gift of mercy, who receives the gift of giving and prophecy, and so on. And so it's up to the Spirit to decide. However, 
The Spirit, in his decision-making process, Paul makes clear, does not overlook anyone. There are no gaps in his gift-giving process. There's no one in the body who is in Christ through faith who is without some gift to give to the body as a whole. And so, here we see that Paul gives the Roman church seven gifts that the Spirit has given to help build up the body as they are exercised. Now, this list is not an exhaustive one, as Paul gives other specific spiritual gifts elsewhere, most famously in 1 Corinthians 12, as well as in Ephesians chapter 4. However, this list that Paul gives here in, in Romans chapter 12 of seven specific gifts, many have pointed out that these are seven of the most practical gifts, the most practical ones, as far as what is the, the bare minimum, not the bare minimum, but the, the bones, as it were, the skeletal structure of a church, are these seven gifts that are absolutely vital to the health, the function, and the effectiveness of any church body anywhere in the entire world. Every single church needs these seven gifts in order to function. I'll also point out that each of these seven gifts is followed by a brief instruction related to that specific gift. So let's begin to go through these seven. The first gift is the gift of prophecy. Verse 6, Paul writes, We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. Now, the very first thing that comes to mind when we hear of the gift of prophecy is typically a, a, an idea of the Old Testament prophets. And when we think of the Old Testament prophets, we often think of their uh, part of their ministry, which was to tell of events yet to come, in a sense, foretelling things in the future. Now, while that is a part of the gift of prophecy, there is much more to this gift than just that. Now, prophesying primarily means declaring the word of God. And that's what the prophets did. They received a direct word from the Lord, and then they would simply declare it. They often didn't even know the direct meaning of the words that they were speaking, especially as far as future prophecies were concerned. But God had given it to them, and so they were simply declaring it. Now, those with the gift of prophecy will have a specific word of God burn within their heart and mind, often so strongly that regardless of the consequences, they simply must speak it out. Now, today, primarily within, within the church context, the gift of prophecy is much different than in the Old Testament, where they didn't have the scriptures the way we have them to know what God said. They received it from the Lord directly. Today, however, we have the written word of God, and so the primary function of the gift of prophecy today is reading, studying the word of God, and that the Spirit highlights a specific word for a context, and so that, that then messenger simply must declare it. And it burns within them until they have done what God has tasked them to do. Now we see this happen in an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 9, the prophet wrote this about the word he had received from the Lord. He said, But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And so here we see Jeremiah with the strong gift of prophecy saying when God's word was, was in him, it just had to come out or it would just burn up within him. 
And so in this way, this is still the same for those with the gift of prophecy today. It is, it is a very strong, uh, um, very strong almost compulsion from the Holy Spirit that when this truth is burning in your heart, it must be declared. Now, this Greek word for the gift of prophecy is prophetia, which is directly translated as the ability to receive a divinely inspired message and then deliver it to others. Now, these messages can take the forms of exhortation. Often they can come in the form of correction. Sometimes that includes a disclosure of a secret sin. It can also include at times a foretelling of future events or what could happen if someone does not repent. Often the prophet's foretelling of future events was simply a choice. Repent, turn to the Lord, or fill in the blank, bad thing will happen. Right? That's often what prophecy was about, even in the Old Testament sense. Now, today, that is not as, as large of a function within the gift of prophecy. However, words are still given to the body to equip and edify the body of Christ. However, we must remember that this function of this office today is not like the Old Testament prophets where it was an authoritative, thus saith the Lord. They are still words spoken from humans and so must be tested against the scriptures as 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 20 to 21 instructs us. There it says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test everything. So it says, don't dismiss someone who says they have a, a word of prophecy, but also test it. Don't just take their word for it. So the test is principally testing it according to the written word. This, does this jive? Does it fit with what scripture says and make sure that it is in fact in harmony with the word of God? Now the additional instruction to those exercising the gift of prophecy Paul says, is that declaring the word must be done according to the proportion of their faith. So according to the proportion of their faith. In other words, to simplify what this means, is essentially the stronger the faith of the one speaking, the more impact this gift will have as it is used. And in fact, to have faith is necessary to the function of this gift because if, if the person is filled with doubt they probably will not speak at all. They'll just doubt whether this is actually something they're supposed to do. So the more the faith, the more effective this gift and the function of this gift will be and the impact that it will have when that word, whatever it is, is declared, is spoken out. Now this gift of prophecy is most often seen in preachers, but it is not exclusive to preachers, as other believers in different roles can also have this gift as well. So this is the first gift Paul gives of the seven. The second is the gift of service. The gift of service. Verse 7, if it is service, let him serve. Now the Greek word for service here is diakonia. Diakonia. And it's the word from which we derive our modern English word of deacon. So diakonia, deacon, which is the, the function uh, filled out by the care committee in our church. They are the deacons, the servants of the church. And so this word diokinia or deacon literally means to wait on tables. That's the literal meaning. So, so uh, a waiter at a restaurant in this very literal sense is a deacon, a diokinia. They wait on tables. But within the church setting, this encompasses a whole wide variety of ministry. Wherever there is physical hands-on work being done, that is deacon work. That is diokinia. So we see in Acts chapter 6 
the first formal ordaining of this role within the early church. The problem had arisen that there were widows who were being overlooked in the distribution of food. They were going hungry. And so the, the apostles, to solve the problem, rather than doing that work themselves, we read that they selected seven qualified men to oversee this practical ministry of food distribution to make sure that the widows and others, everyone was getting their fair share. And most famous of those seven deacons was Stephen. And so we know that Stephen, of course, was not only gifted for service because we also see that he had a strong prophetic gifting when later on we read of him preaching boldly in the streets, so much so that the Pharisees became so angered they led the mob to stone him to death. And so here we see, however, that the first giving of the gift of service and and the practical function within the church take place there in Acts chapter 6. Now, this gift of service, unfortunately, is often overlooked. It's often looked at as a a lesser gift, as a smaller thing. But its broad applications are so important to the function of a church body that simply any church body, any local body, anywhere in the world cannot and will not function apart from it having multiple members of the body who have and use this gift. It is vital. It is the backbone of any church body is the gift of service. People who use their hands in whatever hands-on way is necessary to do the work. And so that's why the physical, or pardon me, the special instruction Paul gives to this is very brief, but it's very straightforward. He says, if it is service, let him serve. It's really that simple. It's not complicated. He doesn't have to spell out all the different ways you can serve, because there are always, always opportunities to serve if you're looking for them. Always there. So what matters most is not the what of service, but simply that you do serve. That if it is service, let him serve. Find a way to use your hands, to use the gifts in whatever role God has given you to be of use to the body. So use it. Put it to good use. There's a story told of a first grade teacher who once asked her class the question, What do you do to help out mom and dad at home? Well, one by one, the answers would come back. Something like one girl saying, well, I dry the dishes. One little boy said, I feed the dog. And on they went. Another child said, I sweep the floor. Everyone gave an answer, but one little boy who didn't. And finally, he was the last one, sitting at the very back, hadn't said a word. And finally, the teachers pointed to the boy and said, and what do you do to help out at home? He looked down, and finally, he replied, I just try to stay out of the way. (laughs) Now, we can identify with that little boy when it comes to household chores. Sometimes we'd rather just stay out of the way. But if we have this similar sort of attitude when it comes to the church, we're, we're missing something very important. That if our attitude when it comes to the body is, I just try to stay out of the way, we're missing an opportunity to be of a blessing and benefit to the body as a whole. Because think about it, if we all took that attitude, then who would be left to actually do the work of the church if we all just tried to stay out of the way? And that is why there is no service that is unimportant. Not a single one. No no matter how small or trivial it might seem, no matter how much someone might just look down at like, oh, that's, that's no big deal what you're doing there. If it is done in service to the body, it is important. And everyone can do something. It could be visiting the elderly. It could be lending someone a helping hand. 
maintaining the church building and property, working in the tech department, setting up or taking down tables and chairs, bringing food to a family going through a tough time. It can include all of the aspects of cooking, cleaning, doing dishes, cutting grass, providing childcare, on and on the examples of practical hands-on service could go. And these and many more forms of service can all be done to the benefit of the body. And so therefore, this gift of service must be put to good use. And every time it is put to good use, every time help is given in Jesus' name, it is a blessing to the body and it helps build it up. And so how incredibly valuable are every last man, woman, and child, boy and girl, who cheerfully and faithfully gives of their service. So that's gift number two, and it covers a wide variety of things. Gift number three is the gift of teaching. Verse seven continues. If it is teaching, let him teach. Now, a teacher first presents the truth of God's word, presents what it is, and then second, gives the students or seeks to give the students some understanding as to what the truth of God's word means. So first, you present what it is, and then second, try to explain it and present what it means, and usually with some sort of application. A person with the gift of teaching will be marked by four distinct characteristics. He or she will have a personal interest in the study of God's word. You want to know what it means, and you like digging into it. Second, they will be interested in understanding and interpreting it for themselves and for others. Third, they will have a desire to communicate what they have learned with others. It's, it's exciting when you, when you gain new insight and truth, and there's a desire to talk about it, to share it with others. And the fourth thing is that they will take joy and satisfaction in seeing their students grow in understanding, faith, and practice. So it's one thing to, to do all of this and then to present it, but then there's that joy and satisfaction in seeing students latch on to the truth and embrace it and take it for their own. And this helps fuel those with the gift of teaching with that encouragement that what they are doing is being a blessing. Now, once again, this gift is most easily identified in preachers, but yet again, this is not only reserved for preachers. This role of teacher is actually given to multiple members of any one body of Christ. It simply cannot be overstated how important this role of teacher is, especially as it relates to teaching our children and new believers about the Lord and the life of faith. So again, the special instruction is plain and simple. It says, if it is teaching, let him teach. Again, not overcomplicated, is it? Because everybody has opportunities for teaching. Because everyone has students of varying degrees of understanding who need to learn and to be discipled. Quite simply, without willing teachers, the church's vital ministry to evangelize and to disciple, and principally our children and youth, without those who are willing to do this role, it simply vanishes. It disappears. And so one of the vital tasks that Christ has given us would simply disappear and not be fulfilled if those with the gift of teaching refuse to do so. And so Paul simply says, if it is teaching, let him teach. So I will once again remind you, as I said a little bit earlier, that our church and our children right here in our congregation still need Sunday school teachers right now. So this isn't a coincidence that this text lined up with the need. God knows what we need, and he knows that sometimes we need to be spurred on and encouraged 
to step into roles where the need is. So please, today, take this request to prayer. And if it's clear that this is something that, yes, the Lord wants you to do, that you could step into in service to him and to his body, then I just encourage you, say yes. Say yes. And I promise you that if you do, there will be a reward in it for you as well. And in fact, the best rewards of teachers, I truly believe, are out of this world. Now imagine with me just for a moment. Imagine with me that you have died and you have been now in heaven for 50 years by earth year standards anyways. I don't think we're going to care about years once we're in heaven, but let's say you've been in heaven for 50 years by earth standards. And then someone new has just arrived in heaven. And that new person comes up to you and says, I just want to thank you for what you did for me. I want to thank you. And you look back at this newly arrived person in glory and and you you say, I'm sorry, but I just don't recognize you. And to which they reply, that's because you only knew me when I was a child. But you see, you were my Sunday school teacher. And you were the very first one to explain to me what Jesus did on the cross in a way that actually made sense. It clicked. And you didn't know it, but it was right after one of your classes that I prayed and asked Jesus to become my Savior and Lord. And so I'm here in heaven today because of you. So thank you. If it is teaching, let him teach. The rewards are out of this world. I guarantee you that. Now Paul moves on to the fourth gift. The gift of encouragement. Verse 8. If it is encouragement, let him encourage. Now this gift of encouragement can also be translated as the gift of exhortation. This word encouragement or exhortation from the Greek encompasses the ideas of advising, giving genuine appreciation, strengthening, and comforting. At one time, this gift may be used to persuade a believer to turn from a sin or a bad habit, to encourage them to turn aside from it, and then later on to come along and encourage that same person to keep going with this new corrected behavior following the Lord. It is often exercised in helping encourage a brother or sister in the Lord who is facing trouble of whatever kind, perhaps struggling spiritually, physically, or emotionally in some way. The encourager will come alongside and through words, prayers, and deeds help someone to keep going, to not give up, even and especially when life is hard. And one of the unique aspects of this gift is that unbeknown to the encourager, They often give their encouragement at the exact moment and the exact time when it is most needed by the recipient. I I simply marvel at this. I, I can't tell you how many times over my years in service and ministry where I have been at whatever a low point, a time where I'm feeling discouraged, where I'm feeling down, and then suddenly just out of the blue, someone goes out of their way to encourage me just right when I really needed it. I'm always amazed at how that happens. And though it may seem random at first, I have clearly seen a pattern emerge of how it is in fact the Holy Spirit who is directing people to bring encouragement to those who need it at precisely the right moment when it will have the maximum impact. I'm always amazed at how the Spirit directs that. And so when you give your encouragement 
and, and you speak a word of, of appreciation or, or just encouragement to someone, hey, you're doing a great job, keep going. You may not think about that ever again that you said those words, but to that person, that could have been a game changer that day. You just never know and just trust that it is the Holy Spirit who will give the timing, that when you speak those words, it's going to have maximum impact for the person that you shared them with. And so again, the practical, the practical advice with this is, if it is encouragement, let him encourage. Because again, you don't have to go looking for it. I guarantee you there's people in this room right now today who could use some encouragement, who could use a word of coming alongside and say, hey, how are you doing? It's good to see you and encourage them. Because there's always opportunities and we all need this. So if it is encouragement, let him encourage. Gift number four. Now gift number five, the gift of giving. Verse 8 continues, If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. Now, of course, all Christians are called to give financially to the work of the church as well as to those in need. But there are those who have a special gift of giving that is over and above what all are called to. And this, this over and above gift of giving is, is to those people who have just a great joy in giving generously, over and above what anyone would ever ask or expect of them. They just take great joy in it, and they, in fact, look for opportunities to give to others. Now, not always, but sometimes, it is those whom the Spirit has given this gift of giving that he also provides the means and ability for them to make more money than they could ever use themselves, simply because... The Spirit knows that rather than hoarding it, the one with the gift of giving is going to take that abundance of extra wealth and resources and use it to find ways to bless others. One famous example of this is James Craft. Now, all of us have heard of Craft Foods. All of us have eaten Craft cheddar cheese at some point in our life. But not all of us know how that story began. Well, James Craft as a young man, was sent to Chicago in 1903 by a cheese company in Buffalo, New York. Now, he was there for a very short time, but was soon released from their employment and found himself stranded and alone with no money or resources to his name. So he took what very little money that he could acquire by working some odd jobs. He finally scrounged together enough, and he bought a horse that he named Paddy, and a wagon to go alongside or to pull behind his horse, Paddy. And finally, he began to just go door to door selling cheese. But it didn't go very well, at least at first. After one very unsuccessful day, Kraft finally had a conversation with Paddy. And he told his horse all of his troubles, and he remarked that he needed a business partner. And being raised in a faithful Christian family, Kraft realized that he needed to reorganize his priorities. He realized that he'd been trying to do all of this on his own and that he needed to really commit his way to the Lord. He had just heard a message on seeking first the kingdom of God and then all he needed would be provided so long as he was doing this first. And so right then and there, he told Patty that from this day forward, he would give 25% of his personal profits to the Lord in offerings. Well, almost immediately, things began to turn around in a very big way. And he continued throughout his success, even as he became a millionaire, to give 25% of his personal income. And in fact, he continued to give more and more until he was giving 50% 
of his personal income and offerings and donations. And later on in his life, he made this statement. The only investment I ever made which has paid consistently increasing dividends is the money I have given to the Lord. That is his testimony. And he also has said that he could not outgive the Lord's generosity. Now, this gift, however, is not reserved only for the wealthy. For also remember the poor woman in the temple who only gave two mites, two pennies, while others gave far more. And yet as Jesus observed this widow versus those who gave monetarily more, Jesus said, while they had given out of their abundance, this poor widow, her gift was far greater, for she had given all that she had. And so clearly we see that the issue in giving is not the amount, it is the ability to do it generously and cheerfully, whether out of our little or out of our much. And so if it is giving, Paul says, let him give generously. Then we go to gift number six, the gift of leadership. Verse eight continues, if it is leadership, let him govern diligently. Now the Holy Spirit gives the spiritual gift of leadership to summon the church to care for God's people and to lead them into deeper relationship with Christ and with each other. They base their success not on personal achievements, but on how well they help others succeed and grow in their spiritual walk with Christ and fulfill the commission of Christ to bring the gospel to the nations. They seek to guide, instruct, correct, and protect those under their care. They are also able to bring people together to accomplish various tasks, goals, and missions that could not be achieved by individuals alone. And it is through leadership we, we achieve this result of the sum being greater than the parts could be alone. And so as a body, we can do things together that we could never do separately. Scripture also has qualifications for those who would be in places of leadership within the church. And so with mature faith, character, and commitment as being prerequisites, they are also required not to hold their position of leadership over others, not to lord it over others, but rather our example as leaders is to be like Christ and to use the position to humbly serve others. It is as Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the ultimate example of leadership is this. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is the type of leadership that Christ is looking for in his church, and it is the example that all leaders should aspire to follow. And so, of course, Paul, as a leader himself, knew that this type of servant leadership is not easy, and it comes with many responsibilities. Sometimes the position of leadership can be lonely, and there can be unique challenges that come along and in those challenges, there can sometimes be temptations for the leader to shrink back or to neglect certain difficult tasks. And so this is why Paul gives the extra instruction to lead with diligence. Don't shrink back, don't avoid things, but, but do it diligently. If you have been given this task, do it to the best of your ability which God has provided you. And I, for one, am so thankful that God does not call someone to lead and not also graciously and generously equip and strengthen for the role, whatever it is, whether it is big or small. Whether it is, it is leading a congregation or leading a small group or leading a Sunday school class. Whatever you are tasked to lead, God will graciously equip you and provide you with the strength you need to do it and to do it diligently. And so now finally, the seventh gift that Paul lists is the gift 
of mercy. The gift of, of mercy. Verse 8 ends with this. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Let him do it cheerfully. Now, the gifted Christian who shows mercy is divinely endowed with special sensitivity to the suffering and to the sorrow of others, with the ability to notice misery and distress that may go unnoticed by others. And those with the gift of mercy have a deep desire to help bring comfort to those in such a situation. The gift of mercy may be exercised in many different ways. The the most obvious are those of hospital visitations, nursing home ministry, homebound visitation, jail ministry, in service to the handicapped, the suffering, and the sorrowing in whatever way. Famously, George Mueller used this gift in his ministry to thousands of orphans in Bristol, England. His heart had such mercy and compassion for these orphans living in the streets that he simply had to do something. And we see the the result as as he helped preserve the lives and, and sustain the lives of thousands of orphan children. Now, everyone in our church family who has gone through suffering or special needs I know this for a fact, everyone has in some way been blessed by those who have this gift of mercy. And so for those who care for people in the hospital, those who sympathize with those going through trauma, perhaps it's a relational experience, a breakup of some way, those who cry with those who are experiencing heartbreak, these are all those who have the gift of mercy. Now whether the Holy Spirit gives us one or several of these gifts... The most important thing is first that we should discover or recognize that God has gifted us and what those gifts are. Now in a practical way to help you discover what some of your gifts may be if you haven't already done so, we have on the front page of our church's website a link to a simple spiritual gift survey that you can take to help you get started in this regard. It's not the end-all, be-all of spiritual gifting. It's simply a starting point to help you recognize that God has gifted you and what some of those primary gifts may be. Now, once you've uh, recognized those, identified those, most of the time these are going to be affirmed within the body, that others are going to identify that, yes, you have this gift. I see this in you. Then the second is, is so important. Once you recognize where your area of gifting is, put it to good use, wherever you can. Because when you identify your gifts, then you see how you can use them to build up God's family. That is, in fact, what they have been given for. At the same time, realize that your gifts, whatever they might be, they can't do the whole work of the church alone. Not one of us can do the whole work of the church alone, myself included. And so, in this way, we must also recognize the importance of those with giftings entirely different from us and be thankful that there are those who are entirely different from yourself. Because we can't all do the same thing. Be thankful for those who can do what you cannot. So let your strengths balance out those who have weakness in some area. And then be grateful that we all have been given different abilities to make up for one another's deficiencies so that nothing is overlooked and that the body of Christ as a whole, when all seven of these gifts are functioning as they should, will be built up, strengthened, and do the work for which Christ has tasked us. For together we each build up Christ's body as each part does its work. 
There's a news article in the USA Today from way back in 1994. And it records the story of a couple named Sandy and Teresa who boarded a flight from New York to fly to Orlando, Florida to visit Disneyland. Now, Teresa was almost seven months pregnant as they began this trip, but 30 minutes into the flight, Teresa doubled over in pain and began bleeding. Flight attendants announced that we need a doctor. Is someone on board a doctor? And while there was a Long Island intern who was almost a doctor, volunteered, came forward, and soon two paramedics also came forward and volunteered to assist this doctor in training. Soon after some time in labor, the intern successfully delivered a baby boy. However, the baby was immediately in trouble. The umbilical cord was wrapped tightly around his neck. He wasn't breathing, and his face was blue. Thankfully, one of the paramedics just so happened to specialize in infant respiratory procedures. He asked if anyone had a straw, which he wanted to use to suction fluid from the baby's lungs. While the plane didn't stock any straws, but a flight attendant remembered having a straw left over from a juice box that she had brought on board the plane. She quickly ran and fetched it, provided the straw which the paramedic then used to do the procedure. The paramedic inserted the straw in the baby's lungs, and as the internist administered CPR, they continued to, to keep this baby alive. The internist then finally asked for something he could use to tie off the umbilical cord. A helpful passenger then removed their shoelace from their shoe and offered that which worked quite well to tie it off. Four tense minutes passed by as they desperately worked on this tiny baby. Finally, the little baby coughed, whimpered, and began to breathe. Soon the crew was able to joyfully announce over the intercom that the baby had been born successfully, it was a boy, and immediately everyone on board began to cheer and to clap. The parents then gave the little boy the name Matthew, which means God sent. And the people on board the plane were all God sent, the father said. God had indeed met their needs through a very diverse group of people who all gave what they had, used the abilities that they had to do what they could, and the end result was saving the baby's life. In this same way, God usually meets needs through people. We pray to the Lord to do something, and most of the time, he sends people as the answer to that prayer. Now, of course, there are things that only God alone can do, but it is as God uses his body, the hands and feet that we have, the hearts that we have, the mouths that we have, it is as we give them to his service that he answers the prayers and moves the mission forward. And in this same way, there are literally people all around us in our world who are crying out. They are crying out in so many different ways, but the... the the thing is the same. They need the Lord. They need Jesus. They need to know him personally. And they need his help. And so, if we refuse to hear or refuse to be compassionate to those who are crying out around us, all because we look at ourselves and say, well, I don't have what it takes to bring them everything that they need. Remember that it is not all up to any one of us alone to meet those needs. It is as together as the local church, the body of Christ, and all of the diverse parts that make up the whole, 
It is as each one of us does our work and faithfully administers the gift that God has given us personally that the whole comes together and functions beautifully just as Christ intended it to function. And so with our different giftings and enablings, as we are each willing to use what God has entrusted to us, then we too will be God sent to others and to this world. For Christ has no hands but ours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are at work in this body. It belongs to you. I thank you personally, Lord, that you have gifted each one of us in so many diverse and different ways, different functions, but for the good of the whole. And that, Lord, over the years I've been able to see firsthand just how beautifully it works when we all just have a heart of willingness to say, Lord, here I am, use me however you see fit. And that as each one says yes to that area of service, whatever it might be, that that aspect of ministry, Lord, it works. And you do a good work. And you build us up and you meet our needs so that no one goes without. And even more, Lord, I've seen how this spills over to the world around us. And others are touched by the gospel and by your love. And they come to know you in a personal way and receive your love and your help. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to work in this, your body. Spirit, we ask that you would continue to anoint with giftings and and fill up those gifts that have been lying dormant within us, Lord, where perhaps you have gifted us in some way and we've been sitting on the sidelines. I pray, Lord, that you would stir those gifts back to life and that we would look, even today, for ways that we can put it to use in your service, for your glory, and for the good of the church, and for the good of the world. And so bless us, Lord. Give us joy. Give us cheerful hearts to say, I want to serve. Please use me, Lord. Use my hands in this world today. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.